All right. Good morning. As we um, are getting into today's passage, today's passage is is one that's super, super troubling to me. Um, If for no other reason this, the main reason I don't pray, that I don't have good, disciplined, set-aside time to to pray, or that I don't have time when I'm focusing attention purely on God just between the two of us is because I don't have enough time. And that is, I don't know if that's you, but it's, it is a, a day goes by and there's so much to get done. There's so many fires to put out. There's so many people to engage with. There's so much, there's so much that, that it's easy to go a day or two days or three days or four days or longer without sitting down and having a one-on-one listening fest with Almighty God. Again, I, I often, it, even there's a part of my brain that even wonders. I hear from so many other people in ministry, in leadership, that, that, and, and we're so quick to assign God to our decision making. You know, we, I'm doing this because God wants me to do it. But then the truth is we, we've really just chewed through it and we haven't focused in. We haven't really listened. We're just, it's amazing how often God backs the decisions we want to make. Anybody ever notice that? Um, and, so, and so as we wrestle through these things and we do this and realizing, well, I, I'm making this decision without, without really being able to engage with God, without really being able to engage in this. And it's because I have stuff to do. There's too many people depending on me. There's too many people who, who I need to step into. There's problems that I've got to fix And so I just don't have time to do this. And that's why John 17 is so troubling to me because Jesus has a few hours left to live. He is the ultimate expression of not having enough time to pray. He's the ultimate expression of having other things that he needs to be doing. He he not only, only has a few hours to live, but he knows it. And the last few hours of that are going to be spent... Um, without really any, unless he's willing to conquer the Romans, to call down legions of angels, really without a whole lot to do except suffer for hours. And that's where we meet Jesus at the end of John 17. He's out of time. He has no more time to share new stuff with his disciples. He has no more time to, to teach them any more last-minute stuff. Um, you know, has he, has he finished taking care of his last will and testament for his mother Mary and his family? Has he, has he made sure and gotten all that kind of stuff taken care of? Literally, has his to-do list gotten down to zero because he's out of time? He has nothing else that he has time to do. He's got just a few minutes before he's going to be arrested and prosecuted and tortured and killed. So what's he going to do with these last few minutes of freedom on earth? Pray? Jesus? God on earth? That's what he thinks the best use of his time is. And that is an an affront to whatever I think is so important that I don't have time to pray, and I find that offensive. I find it offensive that Jesus is telling me through his decision-making path that I'm wrong. That always bothers me. I don't know about you. That bugs me. That the truth is that I think what I've got going on is so important that I don't have time to pray, and Jesus is saying, I totally get that because what I'm going to do now is fulfill the entire cosmic purpose of the universe, of the redemption of the race of mankind. I can see why what you're doing is so busy, you don't have time to pray. And so it's, it, is, it is really challenging to me, and, and 
difficult for me to even teach through this because it has such a strong feeling of almost hypocrisy to teach through Jesus praying the way he does here. And it certainly, I realized it was going to feel hypocritical to teach through it without praying first. So let's pray. Father, we come to you as your son did. And we look to you um, in, in awareness of, confession of our frailties. God, everyone in here is being distracted by something. I know what mine is. I know what mine are. I know what distracts me, and I know what is distracting me. I know what's in my life right now that is just a series of bad news. And I know that probably every single person out there has insecurities and pains and challenges and betrayals and, and, and neglect and, and hurt and, and they have different versions of that too. And, and if they don't now, they have recently or they will soon, as is the nature of, of living in this fallen world. And so, Lord, it's, it's, it's incumbent on me and us to remember that in those situations, as we look to everything else to be the source for us, as we look for our bank accounts or our, or our advisors or our um, or our input from other people, or our salaries, or our work, or our skills, or our gifts, or our renown, or our reputation, or our, I mean, just God, we pick it. And we go to all of those different things because we think that's what's going to rescue us, and that's what's going to save us, and that's what's going to get us through, and that's what's going to push us along. And, and we chew and chew, we ruminate and chew on these different things, coming up with new magical thinking and new solutions and new stuff that we ought to be doing and different ways to change the outcomes and all that kind of stuff, Lord. And the truth is, um, Lord, in the midst of what I have to assume is the most awful experience that anyone experiencing life as a human being has ever experienced, bearing the full brunt of the wrath, not only of the world, but of you, God. And Jesus' decision is to pray. And so, Lord, I pray that you will draw our attention to you as, um, as we continue to face whatever it is that feels so urgent and so important in the moment that we don't have time to pray. And I pray that, Lord, as you have been working on me, that you would confront us with the truth um, that if, if there was enough time for your son to take this time to pray, then there is enough time for us to do so as well. And I pray we would be conformed to his image and his model as our rabbi, our teacher, as he continues to be both now and forever. Amen. Jesus is going to pray and he's going to ask God for just three things in this chapter. He's going to ask God to glorify him. He's going to ask God to give him glory. And we'll talk about that because that seems weird. He's going to ask God to glorify him. Then he's going to ask God to keep his followers now, this is, this is an amazing thing that, God, that Jesus Christ is going to spend some time doing here is to pray to God the Father. And just keep in mind, now there's, there's a little bit of this. I've always wondered. Now, he's, he's about to face some pretty horrific stuff, as we just said. But I don't, I don't know how many of you do this. And, and I even don't know if there's a, like a gender breakdown on this or not. But my wife will often call me when she's on her way home. That doesn't seem strange to anybody. Like it does to me. I'm like, I mean, we're going to, there's only like two more minutes we could just talk in person. Like, I just, I'm calling you, she's calling to talk about the day, and I'm like, that seems strange to me. Like, you, my dad one time said, oh, there's, there's your wife calling you, let her remind you that she's not with you. That's what he said. So, 
But she, she calls and says, hey, I'm on my way home. And, and, and it's not just to tell me she's on the way home. It's, it's to start talking now, the conversation. And so very often now, we'll be on the cell phone. I don't know if you'll have this. We'll be on the cell phone, and we're talking as I'm starting to, I, I see the, the van drive up, and I walk outside, and I'm still on my phone, and she's still on her phone, and she gets out of the car. And, and you have to figure out that what's that magic moment when it's now silly that we're still on the phone because I can now hear her voice, and she can hear. Anybody else do this? Well, y'all give me blank looks. Like, I'm, I'm feeling like a freak. So, sorry, if that's just us, there is a little bit, I mean, Jesus is literally going to say in this prayer multiple times, I'm on my way home, I'm coming, I'm on my way, I'm coming to see you, Father, like, as he's praying, which is fascinating. It implies an intimacy, like, almost like this feeling, like, Jesus knows that being, being what he's about to face for the next few hours is kind of like being on the dark side of the moon. As they joke, they, they talk about how, you know, when astronauts would, would, would go to the moon and you would have... Two guys dropped on the moon, and then one guy who takes the capsule around to the dark side of the moon. They always called him. Anybody know what they called him? The the loneliest man in the in existence, the loneliest man in existence, or the most man, the man most alone in all of human existence. Because at that moment, he is he's actually not on planet Earth. He is not in contact with any human, and has no contact with any human, and no way to contact any human. Like that's, and Jesus knows he's about to be like the most alone person on Earth. In the, in the history of humanity, as he faces all that he's about to face in the next few hours, and so he's telling God, I'm on my way, I'm coming. It's amazing how, how, this, how the comfort of this has played into this. Um, we've talked about, and, and there's difference in de, depending, uh, uh, I'm bringing you into a, 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 one of the, a, yet another one of these big conflicts within Christianity, and I mean that with quotes. Um, like, and that is whether or not this, all, this whole conversation happens all the way up until now, including this prayer, in the upper room, or whether they've been walking the whole way. I've, I've interpreted it as them walking from the time that Jesus says in 14, John 14, 31. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So I've just, I always assume that at that point they got up and left. And, but some people, very, and I mean very strongly opinionated on this. There's nothing will get you cracked up like reading very strongly opinionated people in commentaries as they work hard to make everything fit whatever their opinion is. I know that sounds like a weird version of comedy, but it, I'm just telling you, it's fun to compare because you can tell they're fighting with each other sometimes in the commentaries. Like, don't trust what he says. Anyway, so I, I've seen this as them walking down through this, and here's what's wild. That means... This prayer may be connected in some way to the series of prayers when he's going to sweat drops of blood. So, so John is going to skip those, that little section of prayers when we get to that point. Um, he's, he focuses in on this prayer, and the other, the other gospels focus in on the prayer in the garden that he's there for a while and, and then sweating the drops of blood. But it may be that literally there is a period of time here where Jesus begins to pray crosses the Kidron Valley, asks his disciples to keep praying with him, and then he continues to pray for however long he has until the people come to arrest him. It may be that when we combine John's account of this prayer plus the accounts of the other prayers, we get this sense of how Jesus really did spend the last few hours of his freedom, which was apparently all in prayer. Verse 17, when Jesus, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, now, he's going to say, Father. Not Holy Father, not Righteous Father, not even our Father, just Father. The Greek has the Greek word here, but I would assume that Jesus uses the word here, Abba. 
It's not, I mean, the Greek has a different word here, but in the Hebrew, in the Aramaic, Abba, my Father. This is a very personal prayer. The Father is not the Father in the same way to the Son. This is, this is something I think it's a cool thing to wrap your brain around a little bit. I think we make this mistake. We say, I understand God better because of the analogy of parenting, father and son, mother and daughter, etc., right? That that helps me understand God better. But then what we're doing is we're taking something that was true before creation, and we're trying to make creation describe it, which is not accurate. We're supposed to understand earthly fathering through the lens of God the Father, not necessarily the other way around. Does that make any sense at all? Like, and so there's this cosmic sense of God the Father. I think if we're not careful, we go, oh, he's father the way I'm the father to my children. No, I hope I'm a father to my children in the same way that he is father. That works the other direction. And so he is the cosmic expression. All measurement of what it means to be a father is measured by him before he created anything. Isn't, in fact, it wild that God is father to the son in a way that we can't fully comprehend? He then creates and in creation decides to integrate the concept of father into his creation. Just like he chose to integrate the concept of marriage into his creation. He, he did that. It's not the other way around. And I think sometimes we get the analogy in reverse if we're not careful. God has been the father to the son forever. And the son has eternally been the son to the father forever. And then when God created, he said, you know what we ought to do is we ought to integrate this concept of parenting, fathering into the creation to give them just a taste of what we are like. So we want to make sure we have that in the right direction. Now, the way we relate to our children, that is the analogy. Us parenting is the copy, good or bad, of the real thing. Now, I also think this is significant, that he says he lifts his eyes. Father, this prayer seems so personal, at least it does to me, that it feels almost strange that we're reading it, and that it seems he prayed it right in front of his apostles. I don't know if he was just moved to do that. He's done talking now. He's done talking to them. He said his peace to them. And now it's like they fade into the background for him. And he needs to have a conversation with the father. So I picture him stopping, just stopping right there on the bank of the Kidron Valley. And they all gather up and then he ignores them. And he has to speak to the father. And the imagery is clear. Notice, Jesus has spoken these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven. I had one of the youth ask me recently, like, why do we bow our eyes to pray? Um, and so we talked through, like, it, it communicates a deference, a submission, a, a, and then also closing our eyes to avoid being distracted and, and all those different things. Plus, it's, you know, it's what Harrison Ford did in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you close your eyes to avoid being, that's a joke. It's not, it's totally different. Than that. The, uh, the, it's, it's, but notice, in this situation, it's not like there's a right answer to this. In this situation, Jesus does not bow his head and close his eyes. Instead, he opens his eyes to heaven to pray. There's not some right or wrong about this. There's just tradition. What is it that allows you to focus in on God as, he's, as you're speaking to him and listening to him? In this case, he looks into the heaven. 
Um, this, this is really cool. There's so much here. We could spend, I realize we could spend so much time in this phrase that he lifted his eyes to heaven. There are dozens of verses that apply from all over Scripture. The imagery is clear of this. He is looking to heaven like Job was called to do. Remember that if you've studied Job, and this is one of the common things that we get in Scripture, is that when, when you're looking for God's power, when you're looking to engage with God's power, where you look is to the heavens. And, and I would love to spend a lot of time on this. I, have, I used to do night walks and, and, and stuff like that and talk about the stars and that kind of stuff. I mean, the stuff that's up there is mind-boggling. We don't have numbers for a lot of it. Every time we think we found like, oh, this is the biggest object in the universe, I mean, it's like four hours later, another bigger one is found. It is constantly, I mean, it's just shocking now. And if you want to ever, if you want to YouTube like relative size of things in the universe, do that. It's, it's just terrifying as you watch Earth fade into molecular size compared to some of the stars and, and things that are in our universe that God has created. And God calls, all the way going back to Job, for them, him to look up. And the stars listed in Job are very fascinating. Like, There's good reason to think that he had, God has Job look at, at what would have been the oldest star in the visible sky and the largest star in the visible sky. There's no way Job could have known that. Um, but he writes in Job, and the, right, the lines he uses, they may be what we now know to be the most ancient of stars that you can see by the naked eye and the largest that you can see by the naked eye. Only God could have known that thousands of years ago with Job. And so as we, as we look up into the night sky and God is declaring his power, that is wild that when you want to see his artistry, he says to look at one another. That's a separate conversation from, from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. When, when we want to see his art, we look at each other. But when you want to experience his power, you look up and see it. We don't look up much. And it shows. It shows that we don't look. It, it shows in our attitudes. Um, I, even the, the one thing that I think, as much as I love my smartphone and I love playing on it and communicating with it and that kind of stuff, my number one regret in it is that it forces my eyes downward. And, and to learn to look up, I think, is going to be important for us. Here's what he says. Looking up into the sky, he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, he said this to his disciples already. This, literally, the clock is kicking down, ticking down to the final seconds. The betrayer is right around the corner. Think about this. As Jesus is speaking these words, somewhere in Jerusalem, Judas is gathering up or has already gathered a group of thugs and soldiers to come get Jesus. Right now, they are probably moving through the city trying to figure out where he is. Maybe they've just shown up back in the upper room and Judas leads them up there and they're like, well, where is he? Like, I don't, I don't know, he's not here. There is a place down by, the gar down by a Gethsemane on the, on the Mount of Olives. He, he sometimes meets with his disciples down there. Let's head over there. That's a long way. We gotta walk all the way there. Well, how are we gonna tell who he is in the dark? Tell you what, the one who I kiss, that'll be the one who you'll know that's him. So that you can't see him in the dark, I'll find him, I'll figure out who he is, and I'll go up and I'll give him a kiss on the cheek, and then you'll know he's the right one. What has been slowly building for three years, or for 33 years, or maybe since the creation of time, is counted down like a timer on a nuclear device, like in a James Bond movie. As I was teaching through this, I was trying to imagine those numbers clicking down towards the arrest. At the end of chapter 16, it was, guys, the hour is here. Now... It is, Father, it is time. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. 
We talked about glory a few weeks back, about the glory of God the Father. To bring glory to, to shine light on, to point out like a spotlight what is worthy of note, what is worthy of attention. Our glory is about what is worthy of the admiration and worship, which is not really anything about us. Our glory would be, you know what, you know what I should, you know what, you know what my glory is? It's those things in me that you should praise, those things in me that you should worship, those things in me that you should think are awesome. And you already should be thinking, ah, I know you too well to do that. Right. There's, there's very little that we glorify in. Now, it is going to be cool. Next week, we're going to start with the verse, the fact that Jesus says he finds glory in us, which that's just, that's cool. There's a lot about Jesus, though, that is worthy of glory. His holiness, which we talked about. His love, which we talked about. But Jesus asked that the Father brings attention to this fact. What is the fact that Jesus wants the Father to bring attention to? What is it? It is this. Jesus is about to glorify the Father. This is what is worthy of glory in Jesus, according to Jesus, is that Jesus is going to glorify the Father. And in fact, that is also the one thing that you can glorify in man, is that we get to glorify God. That's the one good thing we've got going for us, is that we can point light to him. We can shine attention on him. To the degree our lives do that, they are glorified lives. To the degree they don't, there's nothing else really we bring to the table worthy of any attention or glory except what we bring to him, his glory, his love. Give the, he gives us the light to shine on him. The Father has already bestowed on the Son of Man authority. He uses that language, that the Son of Man may glorify you. Now he says this legal right over all flesh. You have given him authority over all flesh. As flesh, he is flesh. Living life as flesh. Flesh, representing flesh, now having power and authority legally over all flesh. He now, as of this moment, at some cosmic moment, maybe, maybe at the baptism, maybe before the creation, exactly when, we, we could debate, but the truth is at this moment, Jesus declares, I have authority over all flesh. And God has given him flesh upon flesh, the glory of over all flesh, over all of mankind, over all the race, over all of creation, one of us reigning over us. There's no more excuses. It's, it's a false thing that we often do as human beings that we think somebody, in order for someone to lead us or rule us, they have to have gone through the same things we do. That's, that's always, in fact, that's always been fascinating as a therapist when someone wants to come in and say like, so have, have you ever been an alcoholic? I'm like, no, I've never, never been an alcoholic. Well, then how are you supposed to help alcoholics? And there's some part of me, a snarky part of me wants to go, because I'm not an alcoholic. Doesn't that give me an advantage, not a disadvantage? Like, it seems to me it'd be like, I, I avoided that one. So it seems like you'd want to go to somebody who avoided that one, not to someone who fell into it. Of course, at the same time, there is a, there's an understanding that comes through wrestling through the same stuff. So I, I'm kind of teasing with that. But there's a sense in which we have this natural tendency we want to go, you can't lead us. You don't understand what we're going through. You don't get me. It's the yell of every adolescent that's ever gone through adolescence, right? You just don't understand me. You don't know what I'm going through. And here we have Almighty God who has given authority to Jesus Christ in the ultimate expression of gesture, yes, I do. I know everything you've been through. I have faced every temptation you have and more, ways you can't possibly understand. And I stood strong 
I represent you now. I am your hope. I'm the one hope you've got. The Father gives it to him to give us the hope of that. One of us reigning over us with the power to bestow eternal life to everyone that the Father gives him. The unification of the Trinity is powerfully demonstrated in this chapter. Powerfully. It's so amazing to see this integration that's so hard for us to wrap our brain around. Later, John will write in Revelation, the word of the 24 elders. Because listen, so Jesus just said, everyone you have given me, I will give eternal life to. But look in Revelation 5. This is still John writing later, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, they're talking to the little slain lamb, Jesus Christ, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So God the Father gave these people to the Son, and God the Son gave these people to the Father. This is, the, this is a powerful expression of the integration of the triune God. The Father gave them for the Son to save, and the Son has ransomed them for, the, for God from every tribe. And here's eternal life defined. So if you ever wonder about that, you go like, what is this eternal life stuff we're always talking about? Well, Jesus defines it right here in verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God is to live forever. To know God is to live forever. This isn't merely to know of him. This isn't mere Gnosticism. This isn't mere intellectual assent. This is a personal relationship. If you know God, how can you but live forever? He is the absolute author of life. He is the sustainer of life. If you know him, you're hanging out with him. If you have a relationship with him, you live for This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. Check this, theologians in the room. Before the world existed. So just in case you go, wait a minute. Jesus just referred to God the Father as the only true God. Doesn't that make Jesus not the only true God? That seems, that seems strange language. Here you have Jesus saying, you've given me authority. I thought Jesus was God. Doesn't he have all authority? Isn't that part of what it means to be God? Yes. Jesus was experiencing life as a human being. His miracles came through the power of the Spirit. His authority came from the authority of God the Father. That's the only authority that human beings can, can wrestle up. Did that change at the level of, of his identity? No. But was he experiencing the limitations of human beings? Apparently, he was tired, he was sick, he was hungry, he slept, he did those things, all things which are not the normal experience for God, but he was experiencing them. And so if you, just in case you were a little bit confused, in this prayer, Jesus is going to reference what type of glory he is asking for, which is really wild. Here's the glory that Jesus wants from the Father, the glory that he always had. He wants it as a gift. Give this glory to me. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before creation. Before the world existed. Jesus was there with God. Remember, this is the same guy, John, who wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ has always been God. This is a, a cosmic thought that's a little challenging for our little brains. But that Jesus has, Jesus, God is a, is a self-existent, necessary being. 
His characteristics are the characteristics that had to be there as the, nece- the only necessary being. No one created him. It's one of the goofiest things that some of the really, honestly, just poor thinkers of some of the, the um, uh, kind of trash atheist books that have come out and swept across the nation. And one of their great arguments is this idea of like, well, but if God is eternal, where did he come from? You're like, well, this isn't that hard. He's eternal. Like, I, I get that that's hard for your, our brains to wrap around a little bit, but the truth is, if you're self-existent, if you exist outside, independent of, or at least have the option of existing outside and independent of time before you create anything, then to say where we're, what was going on before that is just silly talk. What do you mean before? Before what? Before the creation of time? How do you measure that? God is a self-existent creature. All of creation, all of our experience, we're like fish in water. We, don't, we can't think outside of our own terms. That doesn't mean there isn't outside of our own terms. It just means we can't think outside of our own terms. We've had our minds expanded at different times. You have in your life, I hope. So you know there are extents of thought, concepts of thought that are beyond us. This is, Jesus is saying, I experienced fully the glory of being God, the Son, part of the, 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 the God of the triune God, the God, the Son of the triune God, and I did that experience forever to the degree, whatever that means, before we created time, before the world existed. I'm ready to have that back. Can you imagine? He's been 33 years scraping around here, getting horse manure under his toenails, getting sweat stains on his robes, being tired and sick and exhausted. We go like, man, I can't wait to get back from my vacation for my own bed. Now, I don't know how many times you have to magnify that to go, I'm ready to go back to experiencing the glory of being Almighty God that I've chosen to go a few years without experiencing that for the sake of my creation that I love that much. That's a love that's beyond us. I told you as we finished up these last few chapters of John, a natural temptation should be that we go, who is this guy? You're telling me Jesus experienced the full glory of what it was to be God? Omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, without limitation? And instead, he has set set some of that aside emptied himself of that to experience life as a human being, and he did so because that was the plan motivated by love. Jesus is fully God, and he testifies in this prayer of his status before the world even existed. Jesus Jesus here isn't referencing just any old concept of glory, but the glory of his eternal existence before creation. There can only be one all, one all-powerful, one all-knowing, just that the God who we have had revealed to us exists in three persons and he has come near, like we said, gotten dust on him and now he's going to get blood on him. He's now to come now to experience this existence. It's, this is the joy of knowing what comes next. He knows what comes next. He knows what comes immediately next and how painful that would be. But he also knows what comes after that and how glorifying that will be. How wondrous that will be. This is why when we talk about joy, anybody can have joy. But, but believers in a, in a loving God have, a, have an expression of joy that someone who does not believe in that cannot have. So in the same way that worry is borrowing fear and sadness from the future, it's worry and anxiety is borrowing fear and pain from the future and experiencing it now, even though I'm perfectly safe right now, 
I can experience the same level of panic and fear and sleeplessness and whatever as if I'm in that. Right? Have you ever done that? Yeah, uh-huh. I know you have. Joy is experiencing the happiness and contentedness and wonder of then, now. Because we know it's coming. And no matter how rough things are now, we can go, yes, but, but coming is that. And so when we go, as Christians, we get to do that going, what's life going to be like next year? I don't know. It could be tough. What's life going to be like next week? I don't know. It could be tough. What's life going to be like in 400 years? Good. That'd be good. How about 500 years? Good. How about 1,000? Good. From, from now on, from that point forward? Good. Awesome. Extraordinary. That's the joy we get to have. And as much anxiety as we can create, knowing that that's going to end, Jesus is saying the same kind of stuff. What I'm going to explain, ex- experience? Rough. What I'm going to experience after that? So which is easier? Jesus made certain claims. The Son of Man, the Son of God, Yahweh, Creator, Redeemer, etc. He's claimed these things about himself. But anyone can make those claims. Lots of people, millions of people throughout history have made those type of claims. I'm God. I'm, I'm whatever. They've, they've done that. So like Jesus at the, with the paralyzed man, which is easier, to make those claims or to die and be raised from the grave? Well, it's easier to make the claims. It's not easier necessarily to do those things, but it's certainly easier to make the claim that you can be those things. But if you claim those things and then we kill you for it, if God raises you from the dead, then we probably ought to start listening very carefully to what you have to say. I've said that all along. Every once in a while, there'll be a hoax around the world, somewhere in the world, that someone has raised someone from the dead. And I'm always like, listen, if they verify that, I'm willing to listen. If, if you raise someone from the dead, I want to hear from you. If you're the one raised from the dead, if God glorifies you by raising you from the dead, I want to hear from you. That would be, I would love to talk to you about that. That'd be cool to know. This is going to confirm everything Jesus. God the Father will glorify the Son. He will justify everything he has claimed about himself. He will confirm it all as true by raising him from the dead. That's why for Christians, when we're, when we're debating or discussing the good people who know what they're doing, always come back to that. Either Jesus was raised from the dead or he wasn't. If he was, then we have good ground to stand on. If he wasn't, then we don't have any ground to stand on. Verse 6, I have manifested your name. He's still talking to the Father. Got to remember that. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The word, the word that was with God and the word that was God has made his name known, seen, experienced. To know Jesus is to know God. To know God is to have eternal life. That's how this works. That's the gospel. God gave those he had chosen to Jesus in order for Jesus to save them. This is powerful shepherding language. They have kept your word, which is powerful obedience language. We've got to stop trying to drive a wedge between scriptural concepts when there isn't a gap. Love and obedience go hand in hand. We keep trying to drive a wedge in there so that somehow we don't have to mess with one of them or that we get to focus on one of them. But the truth is, yet again, love and obedience are, are so interconnected, they cannot be driven apart here. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. Oh, it's, it's interesting to me because I don't think they know that yet. They're about to. I think he's speaking a little bit ahead here. They're going to see it. It tells us, tells us a few chapters back, like after he was glorified. Then they saw it. Then they really got it. 
But I think he knows that they've, that they've got what they need to have this. They know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know what? I want to comment on something here. Because some of this language, I think, I think when you're reading this, it can sound like, here's a natural temptation that we have because we're human, is that we want to pit the authority and power and position of Jesus Christ against the authority and power and position of God the Father. That's our natural temptation. We do that. I just taught a, a week of family camp. and I was teaching through Ephesians. And let me just tell you, you want to you stay away from like difficult, challenging topics and, and controversial topics, don't teach Ephesians, right? And so we get into the part of Ephesians that talks about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands dying for their wives. And, and there is a, a lot of controversy in that. And here's why. The reason why is because we want to pit my responsibility and authority, the natural temptation, against my wife's responsibility and authority. That's what we do naturally. Well, what's he going to do? Well, what's she going to do? Well, that's none of your business. This is not how this works. If I do my part and she does her part, then we don't have to worry about it. That's, that's exactly how, the, it's, a, it's amazing, but we're so concerned about, yeah, but what if I give more than she does? Yeah, but what if I pay more than he does? Yeah, but what if I sacrifice more than, and, and we so want to pit them against each other that we then take our fleshly tendency to want to pit authority and responsibility and those relationships against one another, that then we commit the blasphemy of applying that to God the Father and God the Son, and we go, wait, whoa, 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 Jesus is, is getting authority from the Father? Sure. Because there's no competition with them. There's no breach with them. There's no, they just, they just live this way. They live in a community of absolutely sacrificial, perfect, flawless love. Of course they're constantly deferring to each other and giving to each other like, no, no, you first. No, let me, let me, of course that's how they live. Wouldn't it be cool if we could learn to live that way? That's how they exist. And we go, wait, but that doesn't make any sense. Jesus Christ was, was came and did this. What about what was going on with God? Stop pitting them against each other. We've, we can't do that in this passage. Jesus isn't doing it, so we need to not somehow try to apply that. That's where we get to heresy, I think, sometimes. They believe that you sent me. They're, they're starting to get it. They've received it. They see this. So Jesus said that his words were from the Father, all of them. He said that before. Wait, Jesus had to, had to obey the Father and had to learn obedience again? Sure, why not? Jesus would not have seen that in any way a threat to his power and authority. He has limitless power and authority. So it's not like it's hard for him to accept instruction. It's hard for us. It's not hard for him. There's no, there's no issue there. Their, their existence is so different that these handful of people have accepted this as true, that have accepted the words as being from God, as being eternal, as being profound, and for them they hold on to them. So what about us? Not to jump to application too quickly, but a few weeks ago Paul asked if we, could, if we came believing that there was something in God's word for us. Do we come Sunday, do we come to scripture, do we come when we study believing there's probably something here for us? I'm intrigued to see what it is. I'm interested to see what God's word has for me, has to change me and grow me. Is there something there for us? I, over and over again, I see marriages that stink and say, I wish I could find some insight. My family's a wreck I wish there was somewhere I could go to find answers. I'm lonely, afraid, or faithless. If only, if only. Well, the disciples actually understood. These words are from God, not merely man. There may be answers here. 
in God's word for us. Jesus is still talking to the Father in front of the disciples. I'm praying for them. This This is a weird phrase right here. This is one of the weirdest phrases anywhere. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine is yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. The word world is used 18 times in this chapter and more in the surrounding passages. Remember that though God so loves the world, it hates him. Though Jesus loves and cares for the world because he loves it, he loves us, he is making an interesting point to not pray for the world here. There's certain things the world doesn't need to be protected from, but that his children do. The world needs to face some of the consequences of its decision And Jesus isn't going to pray for God to protect the world from its consequences. In this situation, at least he's not. Instead, he's just praying for those that are his. Strange. He finds glory in them. They are worth his investment. They, and dare I say we, somehow express who he is and what is praiseworthy about him. I used to go, this, this understanding of Jesus Christ receiving all the glory rescued me from a real fear that I had. If you're, if you're about my age, you may have, and grew up in church, you may have experienced um, a skit or a video that was actually on 8mm, which tells you how old that is, and ran on 8mm. I remember going to youth groups and youth events that would have this, and it was about a group of friends who died in a car accident. And, and they are then before judgment. They're standing in judgment. And then God puts up this, essentially an eight millimeter reel of their lives and how they failed and how they've sinned and how embarrassing it is that in front of all of creation, their sin gets like, up there on the screen. And it's like, oh my gosh, my grandmother's in the room and she's seeing the sin that I committed. And then that ended with this picture of like, um, of the two who were lost turning to the two who were, as they're being dragged to hell, going, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you? It was meant to be very motivating, and what it was was horrifying, right? And, and I really began to wrestle with, like, I've made these mistakes, I've committed these sins, I've, I've humiliated, um, I mean, yes, God, but my grandmother will be there. Like, have y'all thought about that? Like, that's, that's horrifying, right? All of my secret sins, my grandmother's gonna be exposed to them. She's gonna be traumatized for the rest of eternity, right? This is a... Like, this, this is awful. I don't want to even think about any of this kind of stuff. And, and one day, I was telling somebody about this. They asked me the question. I was telling somebody. And I said, I said, well, here's what I picture. I picture two stools on a stage, right? You've got all of mankind in this massive stadium, and there's two stools and a spotlight. And they're going to call my, Chris Legg, Chris Legg, you're next. And I'm going to come walking from wherever I am, way in the back, all the way down, and sit on the stool. And then, this, and then this curtain's going to open in the back, and Jesus Christ in all of his glory is going to come out and sit on the stool. And that sort of suddenly struck me like, wait a minute. I mean, I was telling somebody else this, and I had to stop myself mid-sentence and go, wait a minute. I just said, Jesus Christ in all of his glory is going to come out on the stage, and no one is going to give a rip about my sin on any screen at all. Because Jesus Christ is going to be there in all of his glory. No one's going to be able to take their eyes off of him. It doesn't make any difference what's on the screen. It doesn't make any difference about me at all. Worst case scenario is they're going to go, look at what Jesus saved him from. That's worthy of it. Well done, G. You saved him from that? Good job. And the stuff they see on the screen that where I did something right, they're going to go, Jesus, you pulled that off with him? Well done. You rock. Like that's going to be... 
Do we really think, are we so egocentric as to think that somehow the universe is going to be concerned about us if we're on stage with him? I couldn't even finish telling the example. I was like, yeah, I'm going to have to toss this. I can never use this again because the truth is Jesus will be on stage in all of his glory. The end. I won't be able to think about my sin. I won't be able to think about anything good because Jesus is going to be on stage in all of his glory. The recognition of this of what Jesus is praying here Keep, my, keep mine. Take care of them. Because I'm going to be separated from them, in a sense, for a while. And I can't wait to be back with them. It goes right back to where I go. I will come get you so that where I am, there you may also be. In the meantime, Father, shepherd them, please. Not the world. I get that. But them. That's us. Let's pray. Father, you are so faithful. And though often we face troubles, um, they feel big to us, and they are big, and they're, they can be awful and tragic. This can be a horrifying place, this world. And people in this room have faced awful, terrible things, torturous evil at phenomenal levels. And someday we'll maybe stand on a stage by your son in all of his glory And in that instant, all of that will just be blasted away by his presence. Our identity will be so completely in him that whatever we've experienced here on this earth will just feel so insignificant except for how it brings glory to him and therefore allows us to glory a little bit. And I thank you that you have chosen us and that you gave us to your son and that your son has introduced us to you And in knowing you, we have eternal life. And through the power of your spirit, we walk through this life into eternity. Thank you, Father, for the goodness of who you are and that you have chosen us in the name of your Son and through the sanctification of your spirit and according to your perfect will, which means you didn't make a mistake when you chose us. We lay that before you in appreciation and gratitude. In your Son's name, amen.